It's the Nokomoto Podcast. I don't know if this is going to be episode 41. It's really just episode 40, part two of the AIM Expo extravaganza. So extravagant, we needed a two-parter episode, much like the Misfits. Hmm. So, I, you know, I, I don't think we've talked enough yet about how great it was to meet up with all the other shows. I want to get a lot of love out to Larry or uh, Junkie Turdmeister from uh, the Creative Writing Podcast. It was really great to meet up with him. Super nice guy. Uh, I just got the impression, like us, he's just really just not just into doing his own show, just really into everybody else as well, just like the Misfits are. And and, and uh, Bruce Phillip from This Motorcycle Life as well. Just they, they, those, I mean, all the podcasts were great, but especially it was really- Larry... Was, it was it was really good to get together with everybody and just have a lot of in-person conversations and have everyone's perspective on just where the medium is going and what everyone does, what everyone likes about what everybody else does. Yeah. But also just the the um the love for the medium and how how we can all be better and just a lot of kind of just a lot of frank conversations and a lot of a lot of how do we grind this out how do we make this a bigger medium how do we get more people involved how do how do we grow it yeah it's a lot of fun there and that that's that's maybe a little bit more kind of what i'll call pseudo industry but I mean, well, no, it's full on industry. Like the the biggest players of our of our of our genre and in, in medium were were there. It okay. was this was our this was our also podcast moto podcast convention as well. Well, I'll rephrase that to proto proto industry. Yeah, I guess proto. Okay, yeah, and there was also a lot of nerdy tech talk about gear and comparing and microphones and all that stuff too. I I enjoyed that. So. Yeah, it was great to meet everyone. And again, uh, Wes from Chasing the Horizon, uh, the Wheel Nerds, and you know, and um, oh, and Crash and and um, and uh, Stephen from um, uh, Cafe, Cafe Racer. Racer. Yep. And yeah, it, it was so it was so weird because we've heard all these people talk for hours and hours and hours, and so like we all kind of already knew each other in this weird way, but we'd never actually met. It, yeah, it's a really weird situation where you meet somebody and you've heard them for hundreds of hours, but you you kind of know who they are fairly well because you've heard them talk so much and you hear all the different mannerisms. And they've heard you for hundreds of hours, so they know all of your kind of mannerisms, but you don't know them knowing you. Exactly. So it's this really weird, like, first, you know, 10-minute interaction until you kind of, like, gel it over and figure out what's going on. Yeah, when we were driving around with the Misfits and I, I kept, like, referencing things from their episodes, like, you know, from six months ago, whatever, and their eyes kept, like, opening, like, oh, and it, like, it, it took a full day and a half for it to sink in, like, no, 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 they, they, they listen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they do know what we're going on about. Because it's weird, you're you're constantly trying to explain to people what podcasts are, and 
you know, you we have the, all these little things going on the show, all these things that we reference and talk about again and again and again. But you have to assume no one knows what the hell you're talking about every time you meet someone new. I pass out cards for the show constantly, and you know they're they're like, "What's a podcast?" Right? And you have to explain everything to them again. So we all kind of showed up still in that mode, and it took a little while for everyone to just sort of realize we were just all rolling and and we were all on the same page. But it was really great to do that. So a lot of love for all those shows. Listen to all of those shows; they're all fantastic. And you know, no one got paid to go out to aim. And cover all this stuff for you guys. Everyone went out on their own dime. So listen to everyone's coverage of this event. Because everyone brought something unique to the table, I think. So having said that, let's talk about some unique things that we brought to the table. Notably, the weird bikes that we wanted to test ride. And what we did test ride. And again, I want to say a big shout out to AIM for doing fantastic hosting, fantastic test rides and the manufacturers for doing really good, proper test rides as well. Because the last time we did test rides down at MotoGP at circuit of the Americas, it was okay. It's every man for himself, but you have to show up early, a lawless wasteland where a man must make his own justice. Absolutely. If you weren't there, uh, half an hour before the test ride started at Circuit of the Americas, I you the were day gonna, was booked. The day was booked. Yeah, forty five minutes into they started at nine a.m. and by nine forty five, everything was booked for the entire day. You just had to run from place to place, and you were lucky to get two rides in, which is what we got in. You know, it was terrible, but this was great. Because when everyone everyone else went into the convention to see all the big reveals and the big announcements and stuff and see the presentations from the big manufacturers. But we thought, you know, uh, people are just going to like periscope that or whatever. You know what periscope is? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we thought, well, let's just spend the whole first day test riding because it was just open. We could walk up and just ride anything and then just immediately turn around within five minutes, be riding something else again. So well, three time, three of my test rides, we got back and it was just, do you want to ride another bike? Yeah. Like I, now? That was every single time for me. So the first one I test rode was the new Harley Davidson FX DR. In fact, we both did Harleys at first. You did mm-hmm. the uh, the Roadster. Yep. So the FXDR, I want to talk about this. I had a moment where I realized that I felt Harley Davidson bad to the bone, and I liked it. And this was a fun bike. I don't think I would own one. It's not for me, but I I got what the bike is, what it's for, who it's for. Everything made sense. So it's got the 114 Milwaukee 8 in it, making a buttload of power, making a buttload of torque. Harley doesn't like to give out those numbers or put the stickers on the tank to let you know. But it's enough. The thing goes like crazy. And I took that thing at the, the well, let me back up. So when the way all the manufacturers were doing the test rides a little bit different, they all had their own little flavor and spin on how they were doing them. And Harley's strategy was, hey, uh, I w- 
we, I, we don't really even care what kind of safety gear you have. Just here's the keys go. They gave you a map, which was just a square around the airport, but they were like, yeah, just go, you know? So they gave me the keys to this thing. Well, no, they didn't give me the keys. The fob was just like hidden on the bike somewhere. They said, get on it, go start it up. Here you go. And I took it out. Not the most comfortable seating position, but it's not that kind of bike. It's a power cruiser. It's sort of a hot rod bike. It's for, it's, it's a bike uniquely designed to tear up and down the Vegas strip. I, I felt like I was in the exact perfect place that's, that's to be bullshit. riding that bike. You cannot tear up and down the Vegas Strip. At 9 o'clock in the morning, you can. <laughs> and I did. Or 10 o'clock was when it was. It was right at 10 o'clock. I took the thing out. I was. We were like the first people there, the first people off on rides. And I just tore ass out of there because I was like, this thing's supposed to be quick supposed to be powerful. I want to hear that Harley sound. I want to feel that Harley torque. I want it to kick my ass with torque and just go. I'm going to be riding down this up the strip on this ridiculous Harley that's brand new in all my gear. And I want to be turning heads and people being like, who's that guy on the crazy bike? And that's who I was. And that's who that's what I felt like. And it was great. The people have said that the bike handles really well. It handles okay. It handles better than it should for the wheelbase and the rake and the geometry of the thing. Of course, the fit and finish, it all looks Harley. It's all second to none. And the bike's pretty pricey, I think, at about $21,000. It's like baseline Goldwing money for a bike with no creature comforts. But what this bike has is oozing cool factor. What all the things I've seen about the the YouTube videos and everyone says this bike looks way better in person than it does in pictures. And that is absolutely true. Everything about it, I thought for the kind of bike that it is, a kind of in town and some weekend riding sort of thing, it excelled. It absolutely did. This is not for throwing a girl on the back. This is for just... I want to be that Harley guy, but I'm acknowledging that it's 2018. That's what this bike is. Um, traditional Harley controls, everything like that. Uh, everything about the handlebars and, and the, the gauge was very, you know, Harley that you've been used to for the last couple of years. Nothing really new there. What was new and different about this bike is that it handled okay. It was legitimately quick. It was like V-Rod quick. It really was. And it was a different styling direction. And if you don't have Eagle and American flag tattoos, this is the Harley that's going to make you feel like that Harley guy in a way that you're happy about. And that's what I really want to say about it. I could talk about specs and this and that, but in terms of it doing what it's supposed to do, the only flaw that I really found was a ridiculously heavy clutch. And so, like all these test rides, when I got off of it, I was immediately swarmed by all these Harley reps. Because I was the first person that rode the bike that had a media badge. So, they're like, what do you think? What's going on? Like, what, what, you know, I went through the whole thing. I said, the brakes are great. The finish is great. And it's like a weird, it was like a weird pearl matte finish, which I'm not normally into. But it worked on this bike. I said, the finish is great. The feel is great. 
you know, the handling, the controls, the throttle response, everything's great. I said, just for $21,000, why can't you give us a hydraulic clutch just to make that a little easier? Because this is an in-town bike. You're working that clutch a lot. There's going to be some stop and go. And I said, like, you know, I hardly got past the Tropicana before I noticed, like, ooh, this is a this is a, a heavy clutch. This is going to wear me out. It happened that quickly. But That's beyond kind of that, the feeling I, I had, loved it. Um, I absolutely loved it. That was kind of the feeling I had on the on the Norge before I actually replaced the clutch. Oh, because you had that bent lever? Because I bought it with the bent clutch lever. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to yours. Yeah, you mm-hmm. rode the Roadster. This has yeah. been out for some time, but tell tell everyone what you thought of that. The Roadster was an interesting bike. Now, if I'm going to be totally honest, in terms of performance and price points and just overall... Well, hold on. Back up. In case people don't know, describe what the Roadster is. So the Roadster is effectively... The 1200cc Evo motor in Harley's interpretation of a cafe racer. More specifically, it is basically just a Harley Sportster 1200 with taller and stiffer rear suspension, has inverted 43mm Showa forks, dual front disc, Low kind of cafe style bars, a much, I'm not going to say plusher, but very much more like vintage looking seats and tail and higher exhaust. And no, it's still got got the classic both coming out the right side. But it's a a much different exhaust than than the regular Sportster stock exhaust. It's a flashier one. Well, no, it's it's fit to this particular frame, but it's it's the same overall theme. It's the same Sportster 1200 frame. It definitely is. It can't be. It is. This bike is tiny. The Sportster 1200 is a lot smaller than you think. Trust me. Anyway. Okay. So... This bike was, okay, if if I'm being perfectly honest, this bike is technically inferior to the Tracer 900. Yeah. But I understood what this bike was for. So when you sit on this bike, it feels really compact. And you've got this 1200cc air-cooled motor underneath you. And with the shorter wheelbase and... You know the seventy foot pounds of torque you get out of the out of the motor, it just feels ridiculously fast and torquey. Now I've ridden a lot torquier bikes. I've ridden bikes with a lot more horsepower. I've ridden bikes with both of those features that were a lot lighter. But this combination of a lot of weight and proportionally a fairly short wheelbase made this feel like a really exciting bike at fairly low speeds and that's where kind of all of the character of this bike came out it feels very spirited now in reality is it all that sporty is it high performance no but it's a 1200 cc air-cooled motor built for torque and it fits into that Harley spirit, and it kind of melds the two together. And just ripping on that bike in first and second gear 
felt really good. It was really fun. It was really easy to manage. And they managed to combine the weight and the wheelbase and all the performance in a way that felt a lot of fun at a fairly low speed. And I felt that was really good. Now, in terms of the base model and, you know, because everyone, you know, everyone says, you know, well, you've got to customize your Harley and make it yours. There were some really weird features on this bike that I could not abide. And if I was going to buy one, when I was, when I pulled up to the second stop, uh, to the second red light, first thing I did, it was fairly alarming, is, you know, you're on a new bike, you're trying to get a feel for it, you've pulled away, there's nobody watching, and you kind of do that move where you put your legs out, you stretch out, and you kind of shift the bike back and forth at the red light, kind of rub your nuts into the tank. And as I was doing that, found out that um, if you lean the bike over enough and you're kind of doing that motion, it's really easy to get your inner thigh to touch the top end of the rear cylinder and potentially burn yourself through your jeans. Yeah, that was also an issue on the FXDR. But you know that's 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 always kind of been a Harley thing. I, it's at this point like, eh, yeah, I, I agree. I don't want normal normal riding behaviors to be fire hazards. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a lot to ask. I, I know. I I I at least halfway agree with you on that one. Um, now there are some other weird things. Mm-hmm. One of which was there was a. Much like you would have a throttle stop on a kid's bike. Yeah. There was a stop on the rear brake. Oh, yeah, you told me about that. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they are expecting mainly Harley riders to to try this bike out. And this bike is actually built like a bike that will primarily brake with the front brakes. And they wanted to stop traditional harley riders from locking up the rear wheel yeah but that was a really weird and disconcerting thing to be able to push the rear brake down all the way and not be able to feel when i was you know, you, you just couldn't really feel what was going on because there's just this hard stop yeah and you didn't know what was going on really you couldn't feel the suspension dip back and forth you couldn't figure out what was your maximum breaking point like it would, I, and i i went back and forth you know across the um and when you turn right out of the place there's a like empty loop around the place that you could go through and i was messing around with it i was like wait what the fuck is going on here yeah it's like so that's gotta go the biggest and most unforgivable thing about this bike which admittedly can be fixed but should not have to be is I could not shift up into second gear from first gear. Not you know you know how you know when you start riding, you 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 try and shift from first into second, and inevitably once or twice every ride for like your first thirty rides, you accidentally shift into neutral. Yeah. 
I was shifting as hard as I could and lifting my, my foot up as hard as I could. And I was still just stuck in neutral over and over and over again. I could not, and I had to figure, I figured out eventually, but I could not shift into second gear without lifting my foot off of the left peg. Well, okay. But, you know, putting like some rear sets on this bike, which I kind of feel like it should have just had rear sets from the get go is not $4,000 or even $2,000 worth of mods. I, well, there's also the whole me burning myself on on the motor, but there's that. Also, again, this bike needs a hydraulic clutch. This clutch is ridiculously heavy, yeah, and it's kind of unwarranted. Okay, um, but so past past like the flaws here, like because this is this is Harley's unsung sort of bike that should be competing with the Bonnevilles and, and all that sort of stuff, but Harley doesn't really push it for some strange reason. Did you feel like a cool vintage bike thing from it? Did you feel like, Oh, I'm a cafe racer kind of cool guy on it. Did, did it make you feel cool that way? Well, in a way, no, but only because it wasn't completely shit, <laughs> <laughs> which if you're riding a cafe racer, you know, if you're not, absolutely gunning it and destroying the clutch trying to get every ounce of performance out of it okay but just to keep up with traffic in the modern sense though i mean did you feel like maybe you were cooler on it than you could have been on like a t100 bonneville for you know just a few years old okay so i think i think we talked about this before but in my estimation this bike legitimately has more heritage than a triumph does now maybe you know hinkley triumph is not the triumph of old you know they're kind of continuing on with a lot of the same designs but heritage wise and racing wise if you're going to extend it towards flat track and a lot of other things and just the fact that harley has been a consistent entity since you know the yeah. turn of the previous century. Yeah, and the Sportster goes back to like 1952, I think. Yeah. yeah. From from that from that heritage angle, I think it has more credibility. Okay, cool. Now, I know there's a lot of cafe racer enthusiasts who want my head for that statement. I completely agree with you. Uh yeah, people are just going to have to deal with that. But no. let's keep rolling cuz we got a lot of stuff to I do, get through. I do I do have one I do have one other thing to say. And I think this is very common amongst a lot of the the new Harleys. And it's kind of bullshit. And mm-hmm. it's something Harley should address, which is the um this bike had a little light bar literally along the handlebar, like the center of the handlebar right above the triple tree, that were all of your indicators for um left and right turn signal. Uh, oil, neutral light, all that jazz. Yeah, it was all the same stuff on the FXDR. Right. That's just Harley. But here's the thing. You've got these really squishy left and right turn indicators that you cannot feel actuate. There's no click 
for the turn the signal exact indicator. same turn indicators you were using on the Electroglide, though. Yeah, but I actually had line of sight on indicators on the dash telling me when they were on or off. But you have to look so far down on this bike to see them, whether you've actually got your indicator turned on or off. With these really squishy buttons that you don't know if you've hit or not, it there is a lot to be said about um, haptic feedback and having clear line of sight. If all they did was have like a tiny little green LED on the far left and the far right of the the single dial yeah uh hud i would have been so much more content just navigating traffic on that bike but it it's built it's built like it was made for a rider who didn't give a shit whether he was actually indicating or not. Yeah, I, this and, is where I've just got a hard disagree with you. Plenty of people just get over this really quickly. I I can't deal with it, and I won't deal. It's with It's because it. you're new to the left and right turn signals. I think I've put five hundred miles on a soft tail. I'm I, not happy with it. I don't like it. I would tear this the handlebars, the controls apart, and. And put some standard controls on it in a heartbeat. Well, anyway, let, let's move on. So, um, what was the so we after that we talked about the we've already talked about the tracer and the gold wings. What else did you test ride? I rode a Ninja Four Hundred. Okay, tell me about that. Overall, you know, I will objectively say the gold wing was the best bike. The Ninja 400 was my favorite bike out of the entire event. Okay. Now, you said that the 400 basically solved every problem that anyone could ever have with the old Ninja 250. Yeah. So so explain that to everyone. So for me, and for kind of our generation... The Ninja 400 is, it's in this kind of wonderful place where it's a modern bike, super reliable. It's small displacement, but it's modern performance. So for me, you know how, we'll, you know how Emma will talk about, oh, you know, you got these old BMWs and you can advance and retard the timing and you can open and, and, close the choke and you've all these different settings and you can do all these different things to make the bike go and you're really in tune with what the bike is doing but it's just too much to do for you know the person who isn't super interested in in that level of engagement with the motor vehicle in the same way that people in cars you know 98% of people do not want a manual transmission yeah, in America anyway, yes. Right. So for me, the Ninja 400 lies in this amazing sweet spot where you know, you've got the ABS if you need it, but you don't really have you don't have traction control. You don't have rider modes. You don't have all these other fancy little features. It's just it's a 6-speed manual transmission. It's got the ABS if you fuck up. 
but it also doesn't have a lot of power. I think it's like 39 horsepower. Which is impressive for the displacement. Right. But that displacement and the amount of torque it gets is just enough to feel comfortable on the highway. To you know, Because that bike can go up to 110, maybe 120 miles an hour at full tuck. But that's enough to get up to 90 uh, pretty zippy. Yeah. It's enough to get up to 75 on a 65 mile an hour highway if you need to. It's enough to navigate the highway, but you've got to use all the gears. Right. And, you know, I was talking before about how the the Gixxer 750 that I rode at AIM, uh, at, at, bleh, at Coda, it was an amazing bike. It was so cool. It was ridiculous. But, as I've also said many a time, you could take that bike and snap the shifter off in second gear, and it's a perfectly serviceable bike. You can change gears. You might get a bit more fuel efficiency. You might get a bit more torque. But at any point on a public road, it's so much more power than you need. But there's this wonderful satisfaction from riding the 400 where it's just everything is in balance. But you've got to be on point to get everything out of that bike to ride it the way you want to. So, And that is really engaging. It's super satisfying. And I could do that every day. Okay, yeah. So summing that up, I, what I'm tell me if this is a good like summation of the of the experience. The old thing, it's more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow, is what this is really this is the strength that this bike is playing to. But in the past, these small displacement bikes like the Ninja Two Fifty and the R Three and whatever have just fallen a little bit shy of that power expectation to be uh, a bike suitable for, for many purposes. And this is a point where we've just moved into that sweet spot of enough power that this could be a legitimately sporty bike, but still be a slow bike. You can ride fast. It's comes in the right price point, but it's also got all the modern feel of handling and safety and style, frankly. And that's, that's like, it's that a, bike is cool as shit. It does look cool as shit. So that's what I got out of, uh, out of it. I, I didn't write it, but I talked to plenty of people who did and you, and that's, that's how I'm coming away on that one. I think, well, the first thing I said to the, uh, in, to the, well, to the, to the lady the rep that, we, the thing. that we, that I rode with, the thing I said to her when we got off the bikes is I can see this as a bike that somebody purchases as their first bike and then it's their bike for life. Yeah. That's how I saw that bike. Okay. So then I rode and we got to get through these quicks. We still got like three more bikes to do and then wrap this up and get to some interviews. So I got to ride the Z 900 just the regular Z900, not the RS, the cafe one that everyone was oohing and aahing over. I just needed to know because I've been a little bit obsessed with the Z900 for a while because the amount of power you get and the torque and the price seems like black magic. I'm like, how does this work? How is this at like 8,000 or 8,500? 
how does this bike knock it out of the park with these numbers? Because it's like a hundred and like twenty horsepower or something like that at eight and a half grand, and it's like sixty-seven foot-pounds of torque. I want to say somewhere I'm I'm close on the numbers. It, it's more power than you should be getting for eight and a half thousand dollars. That's for sure. And again, I've I've been obsessed with the styling of this bike because again, I know that it's the best naked bike. I just don't like the looks. So I was like, I've got to ride it and see what I think of it. And I wasn't blown away by the feel of it. Like just when I sat on it immediately, I didn't feel like, like I would have felt like dangerous and cool on the ZX6R, the 636, right? I didn't feel that. And I didn't feel a sort of hooligan sort of thing. Like maybe I would have felt like getting on an FC07 or 09 or an FC-10, or whatever. So that confused me and threw me off. The bike didn't fit me, but I'm not going to hold that against it. But I know some other people have experienced the thing I did, where I felt like I was just constantly sliding forward on the seat into the tank. That's what I felt on the Tracer. And then on top of that, like the seat was a weird shape. The 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 tr- the rider triangle, my arms, my feet, my butt, like the didn't feel right for me. Again, I'm not going to hold any of these things against it. I'm just telling you my experience. Yeah, something the, that I, something that I will not be able to ever get is on on any bike I ride, whether it's a forward riding position or it's an upright bike or it's like some weird cruiser that's laid back. The one thing I want to always be able to do is jam my feet into the pegs, squeeze the tank with my knees, and just be able to put my arms out and just be locked in on the bike. And if I can't do that, then I've got a problem with the bike. Yeah. Now, I could do that on the Z900, but it just wasn't totally natural. But I could do that. And technically... Yeah, the bike was great. And, and, you know, the power and the acceleration was there. Um, It revved really smooth and it revved, you know, high enough. Uh, That was satisfying. Um, I don't know. I think I was riding an ABS model. I'm pretty sure all the Kawasaki's they had for demos were ABS. Did not have traction control. I definitely got a little wheel spin in some corners that was a little disconcerting, but again, I was kind of trying to ride it a little hard and throw it around and really test it out. Also a little thing was the worst experience I had with the group maintaining formation and everything was on that particular ride. It was all over the place. Was it worse than the Indian ride? It was way worse than the Indian ride. No one could keep in formation. Everyone was all over the place doing wacky lines through corners. It was really, I was nervous the whole time, just thinking, is someone going to just come out in front of me and break like crazy? Not a car, another bike. So basically, I can't really tell you how good the Z900 is. And that really disappoints me because I thought I was going to have this huge question in my mind answered and it wasn't so this is kind of the worst review of a bike ever so stay tuned i'm gonna find a reason 
together either on another Z900 or a Z900 RS and report back to everyone. Something I do want to I do want to mention real quick is that a common theme across all the test rides is apparently my notion of a safe following distance is orders of magnitude larger than what a local in Las Vegas thinks is an acceptable merging gap. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was ridiculous. By a long way. Okay, so let's talk about the Indian ride that we did now. This is the last one we did on that day. So, we rode two Indian Scouts. You rode the Scout 60, right? Yeah, I rode the 900cc model. And Which then, actually was was kind of the, in air quotes, the girl's bike. Right. With the easy-to-reach controls and the, the forehand, like, weird sort of, like, forward ape hangers mm-hmm. for easy reach. Honestly, I thought that bike had plenty of power and was perfectly suitable for highway riding. On, you know, and I was, you know, at 250 pounds, not a problem. Yeah. Totally can do it. So at the same time, I was riding the 1200, the Scout Bobber. And I have to say that I had a little bit of, I'm not going to say a religious experience, but I had a revelation. So I've been trashing on the Indian Scout for almost a year now. Because I have been just saying it's basically the ugliest Victory Octane that you could ever buy. So this version, though, the Bobber, I thought was just a disgrace and a cheap marketing ploy when it came out. And I have to say that my mind has changed. It has a very uh, W-over, crouched, forward controls, lean over forward with your hands position, just like the Harley FXDR does. But I still enjoyed it. Because, like, yeah, this isn't a highway cruising bike. This thing rips around town. Now, I do think one of the reasons I liked it so much is this liquid-cooled 1200 V-Twin makes almost identical power and makes the power almost in the exact same way as my super hawk does so i felt right right at home with the engine and the power right away but i was in this radically different position and i was really low to the ground and that was a strange experience and it was oddly fun and the bike was small but big enough you know i didn't feel like i was riding a toy and i was riding something uniquely different than something i'd ridden before And like I said, the power was there. And the bike, again, like the FXDR, looks a lot better in person than it does in pictures. It made more sense to me. Could this be a bike that I own? Maybe. Could it be the only bike I own? No. But it was fun. It did make me feel cool. The power was more than enough. It had all the get up and go. It had the grunt. It had the sound. It had the cool factor. It looks modern enough, but it also looks retro enough to kind of please everybody. If you can deal with the fact that you would be miserable on a long trip with it, I think most people could own this bike. Fit and finish was wonderful. Just a great bike. 
Now, I do want to say other thing about the test rides, because I feel like this really kind of... There's an interesting dynamic between Harley and Indian, where although we always think about the Harley riders as having this ridiculous persona and image to live up to, and Harley themselves being very corporate and very, you know, very measured, and that came across with all of the reps. Yeah. On the Indian side, it was kind of the exact opposite. Yeah. Where everyone, all of the journalists every there was kind of, there were people jumping on bikes with, in, in a shirt and tie. And, yeah, sandals. Yeah. And a half helmet. And then the instructors were trying to be really hardcore. Yeah, yeah, there's like kind of a chip on everyone's shoulder over there. I here's here's what I put it as. Also the test ride, you were way up in front, but I was near the back and that train was a shit show. I, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> the, the instructor was also having a bad turn signal day, which was driving even me insane. And regular listeners of the show at this point know I am not good with canceling my turn signals. Mm -hmm. She was worse than me. Wow. That, oh, <laughs> that was driving me nuts. I was like, you are supposed to be a professional here, but whatever. What I was going to say about the Indian culture that was projected to me versus the Harley one is uh, all the Harley reps, you know, they were in sort of the, the, the Harley Davidson like shop and gas station shirts that say Harley and all that. But unlike the the regular Harley Davidson sort of floor salesperson attitude you quite often get, they were a little bit more cleaned up and they were better spoken and they were more professional than I was used to with Harley Davidson. They were they were all really nice. They really wanted to know what I thought, and I got a good vibe from them. Yeah, with oh. Indian. So, like I said, Harley used to be trying to do this whole like America freedom, tobacco chewing, dip spitting, cigar smoking. I don't give a fucking kind of attitude. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And now they're kind of like morphing into something a little bit more uh, respectable. Indian is trying to be James Dean. Indian yeah. is trying to be rebel without a cause. They want this throwback 50s feel and this fuck you attitude. Not like fuck you because I think you're a communist. It's like fuck you just because. And that's weird to me. Yeah, especially when all my experiences with people. With I want to add, I still liked the bike. Yeah, the bike was great. So let's get finally finish on actually you know what let's save the last bike that you rode until we do the interview about it okay okay so let's take another little break here and then we'll come back with some different segments about the show okay so coming back in what i want to talk about ubco ubco bikes this is kind of an amazing thing. And sadly, we lost the audio for the interview that we did with this. And I am uh, heartbroken about that because this was my favorite bike of the entire convention. Yeah, it's up there for me, too. 
And we spoke with the owner of the company, and he laid it out great. And oh, I'm so sorry, man, that I lost that audio. It's that's it's a, it's a crime. But we're going to talk about this for a little bit here because you need to know about this motorcycle. So this is the Upco two by two. Yes, and it's two by two because this is an off road electric motorcycle with hub motors so it is a two-wheel drive electric motorcycle yep it's got a 70 mile range which doesn't sound like a lot but you have to understand what this bike is for and how it's using the electric bike concept in a perfect way this is a bike that doesn't need to be improved on it's already good and already does exactly what it's supposed to do pretty much perfectly so what this is meant for and what they've already sold apparently a lot of these for in new zealand where they're from well what the owner what he said in the interview was they have a bunch of customers that have purchased the first and second generation bike yeah so it's it's good enough that somebody bought the very first bike you know the sort of prototype first market bike then went on to buy the second one. Right. That's how good it is. So it's a 70-mile range electric bike. It's got a motor on each wheel. I um, How much did it weigh overall? It was really light, like 140 pounds, he said? 145 like pounds. Yeah. Really light. Not super large, not super small. I want to say it's kind of um, about like it's a little bit bigger than, say, like a Honda Super Cub. Somewhere it's a, bit, around in a little that bit size. bigger, yeah. It's got probably got like a three inch long. Well, it's, you know, the Super Cub is tiny, but it's got like maybe like a two to three inch longer wheelbase than the Super Cub. Yeah, it's got the chunky tires on it. It's got a rack on the front, a rack on the back, a single seat, but you can put another seat on it if you want. They have all kinds of different stuff you can mount to this for extra storage, and people have been buying it as a utility bike for farms and things like that very utilitary off-road work purposes this thing is just a workhorse it was designed to just be covered in mud and abused people just abusing the fuck out of it day in and day out just taking relentless punishment so what i have heard is from is basically that the motors on this bike are capable of doing more than 30 miles an hour. The reason it's limited to 30 miles an hour is so that you can get this without a motorcycle license. So it's treated like a scooter or a mini bike. They they are doing a strategic initiative to limit the top speeds so that you can get on this bike without a motorcycle license in the U.S. Yes, because in the U.S., that's more of a recreational market. So they're thinking here, they're most likely going to sell it to people who are going to strap it to an RV, go out camping. And then it's got all sorts of charging ports on it so you can power all your conveniences while you're camping. Because realistically, what are you going to do? 20, 30 miles on it while you're out camping or hunting or doing things. And then you've got the rest of this battery that will power all kinds. He said it was powerful enough that you can run a skill saw off of it. 
Well, yeah. Well, think about it. I mean, most motorcycle batteries are what? 10 amp hours? Yeah. So that's basically enough energy to run a vacuum cleaner for, I don't know, like an hour? Maybe, yeah. So, but that's a lot of power. Mm -hmm. So... When you think about the amount of energy a an electric, you know, just take the battery out of your Superhawk. Yeah. That's enough power to charge your phone 30 times. Oh, yeah. And if you take a, if you then just take a, an electric bat, an electric motorcycle battery that is designed to get the bike to go 75 miles, that's enough to charge your phone 300 times, 400 times. Yeah. You know, it, and you have to think about this battery being, you know, roughly the equivalent potential energy as maybe a gallon of gasoline. Yeah. So, yeah, this bike does a lot of different things for you. And again, it's just kind of unkillable. It's super lightweight if you can get it to go 30, 35 and unrestrict it, that would be enough for my commute to work. No problems. It is a little pricey at seven grand, but the price is going to come down. It's still a new thing. American market, all that stuff. They got to import it. There's a little bit of an extra fee there, but it's a proven thing. So if you have a legitimate work purpose for this, it's going to pay for itself in the time and the maintenance and all that sort of nonsense and the fuel. It's a worthwhile investment, which has already been proven by all the people that buy them for work purposes in New Zealand. And what I love about this bike is that it's found a niche market that's perfect for the electric bike application right away. They're going to try to sell it as a sort of pleasure craft and an expensive toy for camping trips and hunting trips and everything, which it's great for because it's quiet. It's not going to upset other people around you when you're camping and all that sort of stuff. It's You're not going to run into issues with park rangers being like, whoa there, buddy, what are you doing on your dirt bike? It, it doesn't have that sort of stigma to it. I feel like you can just kind of ride this in places that you would normally get screamed at for riding a two-stroke dirt bike. But on this, no one's really going to care. They might even think you're just, from a distance, pedaling a bike through a field or something and just be a little curious. So that's well, pretty there's, neat. There's that, but it's also it's also perfectly exploiting the advantages of an electric bike. Right. Because... Well, why do I need to have a crank and then a, a final drive coming off the crank to the rear wheel? I can just put a motor in the hub of each wheel. Right. And, and now I don't have to have a final drive and I have two-wheel drive. Yeah, and two-wheel drive. So it this was designed, like I said, to go through the mud and get abused. Because of the two-wheel drive, you can get through all kinds of just awful mucky terrain two-wheel drive and 145 pounds if this bike ever got stuck you can just step off the bike and walk it out exactly it is you know you were talking about the klr way episodes back and you said this bike is the sturdiest hammer no this bike 
is the sturdiest hammer, right? So if you want yeah. one to sort of tool around Portland, like look at me on my electric motorcycle, I'm so progressive, it's really good for that. It's absolutely good for that. But if you want to use it for a hardcore work purpose, it's really good for that. You can just ride up to livestock and you haven't got the the, the two-stroke brap going on and yeah. spooking them. Yeah, like I said, what if you got like a sick horse and you need to come up on it? You're not going to freak it out and get kicked in the face, right? It, it's wonderful. Now, again, like I said, I'm not aware of anyone else I'd be outside of like forklifts that have taken something electric and really suited it for a purpose like this in, you know, full on vehicles. It's wonderful. You know, oh. Like I said, 70 miles doesn't sound like a lot of range, but when you're working, how many miles are you really traveling? Not many. You you go somewhere to do a job, right? And the engine's not running and you just get off the throttle and then that's it. It's not using any power. Right. So, so you you can go all day on this thing. So the other cool things they've done with this bike is they have geolocation through the ECU yeah. on this bike. Which means if you have if you if you live on a farm and you want this as a work vehicle, but you know, maybe you want your kid to be able to take it out, you can program this bike to have geofencing that you can set around your property so as soon as they go beyond yeah, the limits miles yeah the limit of what you've set on your property it then just stops. the bike just stops they have to wheel it back over yeah. the line until it turns back on again but also if you want to go hunting then you can set it up so that every you know when the bike stops. It's got an accelerometer. It knows when it's tipped over. So you can have an alert. So if you ride out somewhere and you crash, the bike's going to be on its side or upside down. Yeah. And if the bike is upside down for five minutes or longer, there's a good chance that you've crashed. Yep. And there's all sorts of detection they can build into the software. So that someone could come rescue you if you're hurt. Yeah. So if you want to go out hunting, but, you know, may, maybe your wife is worried or your girlfriend is worried about you, you know, they could just be alerted that, oh, the bike is tipped over. It's been tipped over for 10 minutes. Good chance that that the hunter didn't just knock the bike over and walk off. Right. You're going to try and call them. If you can't call them, you have a GPS location. It's a combination of fleet management, safety, rescue, you know, rescue transponder, um, keeping your kids within the property and setting boundaries. There's all sorts of amazing uses. You know, during the warm months, this would be a great way to have your high school kid go go to school and back because you because you do have a little bit of a limited the range exact, of the geofencing geofence yeah. the exact route to school and back uh-huh yeah know exactly where they're going they're getting their cheap and fast and everything you know exactly where they are and where the bike is you know if there's been an accident all that sort of stuff it's pretty good for that too yeah 
oil and gas, camping, farms, utility, and maybe you know if you if you spend if you feel like being a little flashy in town, you know, you kind of live within a big city and you're not really going very far. This is a very economical, um, eco friendly sort of option for transportation too. It's it's just it does something these specific things that it does very well and doesn't pretend to be this electric bike that's going to be wonderful and replace every other vehicle you have. No, this is something that lasts a long time, is built sturdy, because mechanically there's nothing to it. There's nothing that can really break on this. Yeah. Nothing. Like, well, what could break that you cannot prod with a multimeter to determine that it's destroyed? Nothing that I can think of. And, and how many fixes are more than a single patch weld or uh, a straight up component swap? Exactly. And he said that's what these these guys that have bought them already really love about it. And, you know, I got to agree with him. It's it's wonderful. And yeah. he said they're also working on, you know, up doing the range up and other battery packs and everything. But he did say that they are pretty committed to this frame and this platform for a while so if there are motor and battery upgrades the bike itself is upgradable you can just stack extra batteries and link them to get more range on this which he said some people have done well this bike is it's a tubular steel frame it's like a weird tubular trellis frame Mm -hmm. and a battery and there's a lot of space around it so there's all sorts of ways. You can jerry-rig anything onto the It's not a complicated machine. It's really not. No. It's wonderful. And the controls felt great. It didn't feel weird to sit on. It didn't feel like a toy. I'm just really, really impressed. Do yourself a favor and Google UBCO. We're going to put the picture in the show notes as well. U-B-C-O, UBCO. For what was that utility bike company? Yes, the utility bike company, and it's the two by two because it's two wheel drive. Super cool, super awesome. I can't remember the CEO's name off the top of my head. I thought it was like Ken or no, it was Tim. Tim. Tim was a super cool guy. He he spent some time and did a great interview with us. And again, Tim, I'm super sorry He's done that we two lost two interviews with us. Two, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah we talked to him on it. Thursday at the end of the day. Then we came back Friday to record with him. And oh, I feel so bad that we lost the recording, Tim. But you know, it's we, great. Well, we have we were we really have a, impressed with it. So we have a great recording of you prepping, and then I can only assume that you hit the record button to stop the recording. Yeah, when we actually interviewed him. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm oh. really sorry, but there we go. So let's talk about some other things um, that were at the show. Okay, so just a really quick thing. This interview that we're going to play says pretty much everything you need to know, but a quick lead in. What you need to know about SSR is they had a big presence at this show and no one had heard about them. They were doing test rides. They were doing... They they did a media luncheon where they fed everybody and did a whole spiel about their bikes and what they're putting out and everything like that. And then they had quite a large booth on average. I mean, it wasn't as big as Suzuki or Yamaha or Kawasaki or Honda, but it was a larger booth. It was it was larger than Indian's booth. Yeah. Or about the same size, I guess. It's about half the size of the Harley booth. Yeah. And they were kind of making an impression they got some some good old boys to to present the product 
And the way they described what they're going for was something that we haven't seen for a while in the U.S. market, and it was pretty interesting. So let's listen to that right now. All right, so it's Friday at the AIM Expo, and we're talking with Keith at the SSR booth here. And to start this off, so just tell us really quick, SSR and Benelli, their relationship, what's going on there, and the kind of splash that you're making here. Because this is sort of a larger booth, and you've done some presentations a little bit bigger than we would have expected, sort of approaching more of what some of the larger companies are trying to do here. Right, right. Well, you know, SSR was started in 2003, and we came into the country uh, really with pit bikes and started with the smaller stuff, and we've gradually moved up. But we feel like that uh, our place in the market is more of the entry level. The OEMs have are making great product. Technology has gotten great, but so has the price along with it. And what we feel like has been lost is the beginner person or the dad and small children who want to get into the motorcycle business but can't afford it. I mean, you, you take a dad with two children that want to start out riding, they're looking at a 20 grand entry level and most people can't afford that well we are we want to offer product at quality product that you can get into for less money allowing them to start to start it uh at a good price and so as we've grown we grew in uh bigger dirt bikes and then we've also uh four years ago did an agreement with benelli that we would be become the north american distributor for benelli and that was four years ago. And we started out with the smaller stuff because the market um, had been, I'll use the word, uh, maybe kind of flat on the larger CC street bikes. And so the smaller CC bikes uh, had been doing well. You know, some of the other brands came out with the 300, made the 300. So we bring it in with Benelli. The 600 is the biggest bike that we bring in now. So uh, that's what we're doing. We just introduced our brand-new TNT 135, um, and that is a, another market, different market. So we're, we're trying to expand but keep it into the smaller entry-level units. I, I like this entry-level idea, especially for the cheaper ones. Like, for example, I'm thinking, you know, at some point my son is very young, I might get him a little dirt bike. You know, for example, just to give people an idea, that, that smallest little dirt bike over there, was that a 50cc? That's a 70. That's a 70. Okay, what's, yeah. the, what's the MSRP on that? Uh, MSRP on that is eight ninety nine. There you go. And you can hardly find a good PW50 on Craigslist used and all busted up for that money. That's exactly right. And, there, of course, my, I bought my kids a PW, uh, and they're great. Can't kill them. They're great machines. But now they are over four figures new. And uh, But that particular item, uh, that's a 70cc. We have it available in a fully automatic with an uh, electric start and a throttle stop for the beginner. And then we also have another 70 with the same seat height, but it has a swing arm and a single shock like Daddy's bigger bike. So uh, we try to have 
Um, I had a gentleman that uh, looked at our brochure, and we have so many levels of pit bikes, and they, they asked me, why do you have so many? Well, there is a child for every bike, mentally and physically, in height and weight. And so we feel like we're kind of the we're kind of the kings of that market, and they're good quality units. For instance, our little seventy there has real forks on the front of it, where the other bikes have the spring and the shock. So we we feel like we're offering a great value, but a, I don't. Uh, in this market, a lot of times, cheaper price means cheaper quality, and that is true. But at SSR, we're trying to do. Say that's not true. You're going to get a better price, but you're going to get a quality unit for it. So anytime anybody looks at a bike outside of the Big Four and Harley-Davidson, kind of the first question that comes to mind is, what's the parts support like? Exactly. You know, for us not to have parts, I, I, I say, and, and excuse me, I'm from the South, but that, that's a kiss of death for us. Uh, the way we're structured, we sell through dealers, a dealer base. And uh, that customer comes in, and he he's really our customer, but not really. He's really the customer of the dealers. And if that dealer cannot supply parts for that customer, it doesn't take long. You know, good word gets around, but bad word gets around faster. So uh, we work hard on having a great part supply, and uh, you just have to have it. And unfortunately... With a lot of the things that's happened over the last 20 years with the Chinese market, people bought units in, uh, big margins, and didn't have any support. And so, therefore, there was no parts, and that's that bad name that gets spread around. If it's, if it's made in China, it's bad, and that's not necessarily true. So, something we've sort of discussed back and forth, it's not a one-to-one example, but we're kind of thinking back to when Honda in the, the middle, late 50s, came into California and bought a camera shop and started selling bikes, and no one knew who what they were doing. They're like these Japanese bikes, they're low quality, who cares? You know, and at that point, Honda, I believe, even ran into a situation where they had some known issues, and they shipped like, you know... 20,000 units back to Japan, fixed them and brought them back. And that, that parts and quality is what ultimately won people over. And I'm glad that this is something that you're thinking of because we'd all love to see another cool little import, high-quality, low-price story like that. And that's why we're talking to you. We're hoping this will be something like that because we're not really obsessed with horsepower. We're, we're more interested in the everyday riders, people that make it part of their, their lifestyle. And a Ducati Panigale isn't that for everybody, exactly. right? Now, having said that, I want to talk about this 300 a little bit, yeah. or have Swiggy talk about it, because he rode this thing today. So let's start. What did you think of riding it? Well, first off, it does seem, it, it, I would say for the 300, which is kind of appropriate, at 510, I was probably at the upper limit, but it was still felt like it was a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with that 32 horsepower and just with the six gears, it had that same satisfying feeling that you would get on like an R3 or a, a CBR 300R, where you do have to you have to go through all the gears to get the power and get up to speed. But it's there, and the most important thing about these small displacement bikes is that it was enough power to get on the highway and feel in control, and. I think that's that. That is exactly where 
those kind of, these kind of small displacement bikes need to fit into. Because you can sell a 250 single and say, oh, well, you can legally go on the highway, but do you want to? But actually, uh, sorry, what was the what was the price on this? Thirty nine ninety nine MSRP. So that's killer. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're getting you'll get this bike tax, title, insurance, and be on the road for cheaper than a big four bike. Right, right. You will. And what we try to do, what I, I love about the Benelli, we have little things um, on the bike, like we have dual disc on the front. Most of the other OEMs have a single disc. We have inverted forks. So it's got the big bike features. Uh, another thing that I really like, and I personally, I have one of these that I ride, and uh, um, I, I live in the East Coast, and um, we, I live for the mountains. And a 250-300, if you're cruising on the road and you're in sixth gear, it tends to want to pull down. The, the torque of the engine wants to pull down. The torque on this engine, is it's very comfortable. It doesn't pull down like a lot of the other 300-250s. And that's what I noticed. That's one of the first things I noticed when I rode the bike. I did notice from 5,000 up to 10,000, it did have very even power delivery. So it just uh, so it's a great it's a another good entry into a market and and the, the, the couple things I've noticed in selling small bikes smaller but CC bikes you got to look good and it's got to sound good and the sound of this engine this uh, twin cylinder three hundred is really good and uh, so the total package uh, again the quality for that price value is what we go for at SSR Benelli. I, I want to say something about the 600. Not I have this weird thing in bikes that I love that not a lot of people are into, and that is really extravagant factory exhaust. And on the 600, the, the Undertale exhaust on this almost reminds me of the exhaust on like an old um, Suzuki B-King. It really comes out in your face in a very sort of Italian way. It, and that makes me want to ask the question. So in this, you know, uh, Benelli's been, you know, acquired by SSR. Is some of this styling still done in Italy or anything like that? Or is it... Or is it, you know, done by SSR or a combination? No, the actual styling is, um, and part of the manufacturing is still done in Italy. All, uh, we, we, none of it is done outside of that as far as the design and the, and the building of the unit. So this uh, is still an Italian motorcycle? Well, uh, I'll say kind of, sort of. Uh, okay. Several years ago, um, Benelli sold, was bought by a Chinese company. But for lack of words, I tell them they left them alone. They left the manufacturing plant in Italy. They left the design in Italy and still in operation in Italy today. However, they have a manufacturing plant in China. Some of the units are still manufactured in Italy. Some are manufactured in China. I have to look at the VIN number to see which ones. But as you can see, the quality, by looking, you cannot tell them, which goes back to the same thing I said earlier. Just because it has a better price doesn't mean it's cheaper quality. Right. So, yeah, Benelli definitely had a, a different kind of market and reputation before all of this. But this new incarnation, you know, if if, uh, if this is where it's going, this, this does interest me. This is a story. And I, um, 
and in the sort of changing of of roles for Benelli. And you said something in the press, uh, um, the presentation yesterday. You said, especially with the dirt bikes, but in sort of general philosophy, you're trying to be sort of a modern Hodaka. <laughs> Can, can you talk you, about that for a second? Because I really liked that. I really um, liked that. Well, I, I looked around the room, and I'm thinking I, um, I I saw some people that looked my age. I'm 64 years old, and when I was riding, when I was your guys' age, there was a, a, a manufacturer by the name of Hodaka. A lot of people wouldn't heard of yet, but oh, they're legendary. I, that, I, I was riding a uh, Yamaha, and the, the Yamahas were all coming with the new bikes. But you had this little old company making uh, some dirt bikes, and uh, I think you could buy one at that time for three ninety nine. But it was good quality, and I had my, all my buddies bought the Hodakas, and we went trail riding on the weekends, and everybody had fun. Uh, my bike was eleven hundred dollars, and theirs was three ninety nine. But we both we all had fun, and over the years we've seen that gap sprit getting higher the difference between as the technology and the bikes are great today but the money again has gotten so expensive and we just felt like there was nobody there to take that gap fill that hole and that's what we want to do at ssr put a good fill that hole give a good product uh but we're not trying to compete with the ktms the betas uh the huskies and that that's a different rider We've often said that a lot of the sport bikes suffer because they all have to be sold off of a spec sheet, right? And when you free yourself from a racing class, you're allowed to make a much more practical sport bike and usable sport bike. And it seems that by by just immediately saying, okay, we're not going to make the highest competition level dirt bikes or whatever, you kind of free yourself to go down to a point where price and quality might meet more evenly. Because mm-hmm. as you go up in performance, you get diminishing returns on those dollars. And that's where some of this value is coming from. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, there there's a trade-off. You, I've had people ask me, like on our 300, that uh, bike is going to retail for $42.99 and uh, half the price of something else. And instead of looking at it as, well, it's a cheaper quality, no, not necessarily. It doesn't have the expensive metal materials that cost so much money to be so light and so strong. That bike is heavier. And that, so that's the trade-off you get, which in a full-blown competitive nature, that's a big deal. But if Dad and the kids are riding or even somebody like me, a vet rider, who's not an A rider, not even a B rider, doesn't really matter that much about the weight. So I will trade that off to save the money. And that's that's where a hole we fit that that's not out there today. Cool. Well, this has been fun. Like I said, we're going to we're going to be following this story and see how you guys do because this sort of, you know, I I don't want to say ordinary bike, but this bike for the people. Mm-hmm. Is something that really hasn't existed for a while. Is everything has become super premium, and I think the it's having a, a brand like this. If this all works out well, and and people really start buying these and love them, I, I think that's a part of the market that people need. I think people need sometimes something ordinary to just love and ride and make a part of their life, rather than this expensive weekend toy. Right. Well, we that's what we believe, and that's our direction, and that's the way uh, way we're going to go. Thank you, gentlemen, for allowing me 
to tell our story. And uh, good meeting you, Jonathan and Peter. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Okay. So I think people know a lot of what they need to know, but what they haven't heard yet is the last test ride that we did, you rode the Benelli 300, which is basically an SSR. So in just a couple minutes, tell us what you thought about that. I actually loved the, I loved the TNT 300. It was a great bike. Now, it's 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 kind of on the edge as a bike of what I consider the Ninja to be perfect as, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's got 32 horsepower, which is more than a CBR 300R. It's a little tricky in that it's only 18 foot-pounds of torque, so you've really got to work it, and you've really got to be on the ball to ride it well. But... If you've got some practice and you do some side roads and you do some 50 mile an hour roads before you jump straight on the highway after your test, you're going to be good to go. And I had no problem riding that bike on the highway. And when you consider that you basically got a budget small displacement bike with pretty decent horsepower for $4,000... And it all felt tight, and it felt good, and the fit and finish was good. It was a really compelling product. Yeah, I was impressed with the look of them, the styling. Again, not my cup of tea, but I thought it was weird enough and wacky enough, especially the exhaust on the 600. That was really cool. So, yeah, basically, we are going to be following the SSR story closely because this is something that the American market might really, really need and doesn't know that it needs. So if these bikes hold up and have, you know, that bare minimum, you know, standard bar of quality they're claiming to have, I mean, there could be a whole generation of people getting out and starting on these things and then graduating to the bigger bikes. And it could really inject the market with a lot of new riders. Well, especially when you think about, you know, a Ninja 400 with ABS for five grand today seems kind of premium when you compare it to a 636 for just under 10 grand. Well, no, the six, that was the big news of the show that the 636 is just 10 grand now. $9,999. It's, yeah, it's 10 grand. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is, like, when you compare the, you know, the Ninja 300, the 250, and the relative prices at those times, you're kind of getting more stuff for the same relative cost, but there's never been that you know, in relative cost, there's never been anything that you know, that was low enough that somebody could just say, yeah, I could just buy that, give right. it a shot, brand new. Yeah, I was blown away by how cheap some of the pit bikes were. Like I said, I've kind of like had my eye out for something to buy for my son, and they had something for 800 bucks brand new. And it's like, yeah, that would work. You know, when we were talking about how expensive it is to buy a bike for your kid and take him racing and everything, SSR kind of has a solution for that. Now, it might be maintenance heavy and everything and still comes with some of the old problems. But, you know, if it gives you a little break on the price to get you started, maybe that's all some people need. So I'm I'm super excited about that. 
we're we got to roll through some more stuff here. So let's keep going. Um, let's run this interview now about a system I saw for blind spot detection because that was pretty neat. So let's run that. Okay, so we're here with Augustin for Cub Motorcycle Blind Spot Detection. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. So this system helps riders identify vehicles, uh, cars, or motorcycles in their blind spots. Sometimes it's difficult to make a full turn and check traffic before you make a lane change, and your mirrors may tell you what not to do, but they can never tell you what to do. So our system helps by uh, showing you with an indicator and also giving you a vibration alert on your bum uh, when there are vehicles in your blind spot. All right, so this is pretty neat for me because it's not like it's not a really big ugly system. It's just two little little bits that go on the very inside of your rear view mirrors, and those are what light up. And they light up all the time when something's in your blind spot, or if it's sensing you turning and something's in your blind spot. So it works the same way as your car. If you're just riding along straight, then it lights up constant to let you know there's a vehicle in your blind spot. When you activate your turn signals to make a lane change, if there's a vehicle in the blind spot, then it'll blink and also give you a vibration alert under your butt. Okay. And then we've got that for the rear as well. So it's got sensors. So the, the, the sensors are simply in the back, and what lets you know that somebody's in your blind spot are just the lights on your mirrors, correct? That is correct. So the radar mounts at the license plate at the rear of the bike, and they are adjustable to position the radar in the correct angle. Uh, that way we have the, the detection area correct. And then the wiring is run from the tail section into the under seat area where you make your connections uh, and put in the vibration module. Then additional wiring goes up to the mirrors for your indicators. All right, this is pretty cool. Uh, what are we talking about roughly on the cost for this system? So the system retails at $799, uh, and installation is about an hour at a shop. DIY, probably about an hour and a half. So it's very reasonably priced uh, labor-wise and also for the parts. Okay, so around what you might be paying for ABS on a bike from some manufacturers, something like that. Right. It's in the ballpark range of features like ABS, like you mentioned, or, you know, a simple slip-on pipe or other accessories that are pretty normal for people to buy. Okay. And then another question I got here. Do you think there's any possibility now or in the future there could be some sort of insurance break, you know, on your premiums or anything for having a system like this on your motorcycle? We would hope so. Uh, in the automotive world, as you build safety equipment into it, you get discounts. Uh, hopefully the insurance industry for motorcycles sees this as the same thing, and they could offer a break for additional safety equipment. Right on. I, I kind of see this as a kind of system that, you know, if you own it, if it's patented by you guys, could be possibly, you know, brought into become a standard feature on, you know, say Honda motorcycles or something like that. Is that something you kind of see maybe happening one day or hoping for? We see that um, it's actually becoming a trend on some bikes. Uh, for example, the BMW scooter, the 650 GT, has it as an available option. Um, and also, Honda is also working on something as well. They've got a patent pending, I believe, um, that's for a blind spot system on the motorcycle as well. All right, cool. All right, so we said about 700 bucks. Don't merge into anybody. Know when someone's just in your blind spot. Be more aware. And, hey, 700 bucks is a lot cheaper than a brand-new motorcycle and a hospital bill, isn't it? Absolutely. All right. Well, good talking with you, Augustine. And, um, yeah, let's move on to our next booth. Great. Thanks for your time. 
Yeah, so um, that guy was pretty nice. It was a small booth way off in the corner of the place because, like I said, I was looking for the products and the stories that no one else was really doing. I wanted to cover a different convention than everyone else was covering. So I found that booth, and I've seen some like other versions of that system, and... It's just an interesting option. You know, I I love safety equipment. I love the angle that possibly at some point we might get breaks on motorcycle insurance for having safety equipment like that. Um, I don't know. I just think that's worthwhile and worth thinking about. The only thing about it is that I'm a little confused as to when I think about what the system is, the number of sensors, the little complexity. There's only two sensors. Right. And, you know, there's a little rumble under the seat, plus, you know, the indicator on the handlebars. I'm I'm confused as to why it's $700. I I don't know. It's it's essentially a, a, a blind spot system taken out of a car and then just put into a mounting system that makes it work for your bike. That's mm-hmm. really all it is. So... I mean, there must be a reason, but I haven't seen anything else sort of out of the box ready just to go and just bolt onto a bike yourself. And like I said, if you've got a twenty to $30,000 motorcycle, 800 bucks to know your blind spots, there's an argument that that's worth it. You know, would I put yeah. that on a $2,000 bike off Craigslist? Hell no. But, you know, if I'm... If I'm, you know, 60-something and I'm re- looking at retiring and I've got all the money that I need and I'm buying my dream bike, I'm thinking about putting a blind spot system on it. Hell yeah. So, well, I don't know. Maybe it okay. works brilliant. Maybe it doesn't. But that's the whole point of these shows. There's all this crazy stuff out there. This is all new stuff. A lot of it isn't tried and true. So, uh, uh, I think one of the last interviews that we did... No, no. This is one of the early ones that I did. This one. I want to talk about this guy... Um, that did these air filters. Um, he, we're going to, the well, here, let's just listen to it. It's FMF air filters. This was pretty cool. All right. So we're here with Niels van Kempen, who does an interesting air filter for dirt bikes. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about how this works, what it looks like, and what it's for? Right. Well, it's a single layer profile foam. It looks like a pyramid. And due to the pyramid shape, you got got 100% more surface. And thanks to the surface area, you have to double the air filter in the same airbox, which gives you more time to ride and less time to clean, because you don't need to clean it that often. And that's a kind of the whole story. I don't, you know, like it's been built for riding longer, not about gaining power or whatever, maintaining power, start early in the morning, one air filter, end of the day, same air filter, get a beer, brush it off and go up. That's the whole story. Well, I love the honesty here because so many every other air filter you look at in the market is promising more power, and that's not what you're doing here. You're not saying there's this magical airflow that's going to change what's happening. You're simply just making a better air filter, more reliable, less particles in your engine, longer engine life. Now, about you said this this thing is um, you you can clean it and reuse it. Yeah. About how many hours would you recommend, or is there a way? What's the service on this? Oh, the service is due on like it's how dusty it is. But I got guys running airfields like a thousand kilometers. I just like uh, five hundred miles, something like that. 
Uh, it depends on how the dust is, but um, the good part is because of a single layer it is, the dust is on the outside instead of with dual layer systems, it's in between layers. So with us, you can brush it off and go again. And that's the good part. I got guys that <clears throat> run air fills for uh, 1,000, 1,500 kilometers. And the big races, you know, like even in, in, I don't know if you know, Sheet to Sky and all that stuff. In Africa, big races, uh, Dakar, they all run one air filler all day. And they don't change it because changing an air filter in a dusty condition, you know, on racetracks, on the desert, whatever you are, you pull it off and there's already dust flowing in by the wind. And you think you're doing a good job because you're cleaning a new air filler in, but it isn't. Just leave it on, put that in your van and clean it in your van or at home or in your tent, you know. It's, it's a different approach on how you go on with an air filter. I like that. Now, this uh, this design where it's got, you know, the spikes all over it and everything, as you say, it's a web web funnel design. Um, this is like a patent you own? This is unique to your product? Um, it's a model right patent, and it's patent pending. Uh, it's a, how do you call that? It's a, well, it's it's a product that suits funnel up, and it looks like funnel up. If you talk about funnel up, it's a spiky pyramid stuff, and I think it's... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's unique to us. Um, yeah, it's just totally different than the rest. And I like this story of you running this as well, because as you said, this is a one-man operation. you got some people helping you put these together, but this is your idea. You're bringing this out. You here, coming here to AIM from, uh, where are you from? From the Netherlands. There we go. Selling this product, and I love that, just kind of taking on... You know, some other people making different kinds of designs just with a very different philosophy. I think that's a cool story, man. Yeah, it's funny. When you, you look at the whole market, they've been doing the same stuff for 40 years. At 40 years, they've been doing dual-layer air filter systems. And when I buy a helmet that's been 40 years the same stuff, I won't buy it. If it's a motocross bike, 40 years the same bike, I won't ride it. I want a new stuff. And it takes a while for everybody to understand, like, okay... Don't talk about power, all that stuff. Talk about riding more and worry less. And that's the whole point. Well, I absolutely love that philosophy, and I like this. I don't personally own a dirt bike yet, but if I do, I think I'm buying one of these. All right, thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. Cheers. So there you go. Just to just to cap that one, just a no-nonsense, longer-life air filter, which he didn't really sell in as hard as I think he should have in that one area where he said, if you're doing some sort of endurance racing, swapping out your air filter is time it'll take out. So if you've got an air filter with twice that surface area and you only have to clean it half as much, well, that does save you time and therefore make you faster in like a Baja 1000 racing situation. So he could have played that up a little bit more, but I did love how honest he was about this doesn't give you any more power. Just so no nonsense. And again, I love his story that he's just a guy that saw this idea in his mind, made it happen. He said he's got two girls that he hires to glue the things together. And other than that, he's a one man show. If you order one of these, he sticks it in the box and he mails it to you. And that's it. And he flew himself out there and his whole booth and everything to aim from the Netherlands. And he's selling this stuff. It's a brand new product. No one knows about it. He is tied up like his life savings in this. 
and he's just having a go of it. And I thought that was a great little story at this huge convention with like 200 booths and big companies. He was just this one guy there. He didn't have anyone to like hold the floor for him while he went and took a pee break or anything. And I just think that's really badass. And anyone out there with a dirt bike should look into these filters. FMF air filters. Pretty cool. What we haven't talked about is what any of the big makers did, which is what a lot of people want to know about. Like, oh my gosh, like who revealed what, right? And some of that, frankly, was a little disappointing. But I want to start on a positive note. Kind of the the newish thing that Suzuki had going on, which they didn't make a super big deal about, was a weird little 150cc track bike. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of had one there. The bike was built. It wasn't concept. It was there and it was finished. And it had the very much the Suzuki like GP racing livery and colors on it. And it looked ready to ride. But they were asking like, well, what would you be interested in a bike like this? What would you ride it for? How much do you think it would be worth buying for? All that sort of stuff. And they weren't making that big a deal about it. But I do think it's interesting that Suzuki's thinking about this, you know, sort of junior race bike. I mean, a 150 single, that's crazy in a sort of miniature, I super sport wouldn't be the word, just regular sport. I guess junior sport would be the category. Well, it's no crazier than a Grom. In fact, it's less crazy than a Grom. Well, because a Grom is like no, it's more crazy than a Grom because so a Grom 150. is a, Grom's a one seven one two five, right? Right. So yeah, it was a one fifty. But the thing is, it, the one it just didn't look usable necessarily in the real world unless you were a very tiny person. But what it did look like was just the most insane sort of small track. Like you could take a few of these to a go-kart track and just have the most amazing little miniature race. Like you can with the Grom. Yeah, no, here's the thing. It, no, it, you're, you're confused and I understand <laughs> <laughs> because Honda has, has put you under this spell, which is that the Grom as a one, two, five looks like a, like a mini little, almost looks like a 250 with a, a miniature frame. Mm-hmm. And it's convinced you that this is a practical bike and it makes sense in the American market. And for a lot of people, it does. For all the people who, you know, for the 45% of the population that never has to get onto a highway to get to their job Mm -hmm. for the rest of the country. It's insane. But Honda has convinced you that that is not a restriction on the Grom. And now all of a sudden this 150 that is larger than a Grom and also not highway capable or not highway legal suffers the same restrictions, but probably has more power probably has more torque and it's in the same position right but the but this bike by being a sport bike suggests that it's for something else right if if the grom is a um 
You know, I, I, for like the first time in my life, I just can't connect an analogy. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Th- this 150 just intrigues me. I guess that's all I can say. This whole idea that Suzuki's thinking about doing a 150 sport bike, because there's loads of 150 sport bikes in China, in Southeast Asia, in heck, in, in Italy, like, you know, like I'm sure Aprilia makes a bunch of like 150. Well, I know they make a bunch of 150 like sport scooters. And I know that there used to be a quite large market. The problem for 150s. is you don't have a box to put it in. Right. But I'm intrigued at the idea that Suzuki's like, well, why not? So let's just see. Like, does Suzuki have some sort of idea that maybe they can add on uh like a junior class racing class to Moto America and this is the bike that's gonna dominate it? Are they trying to get youth racing started again? I don't know. It just has it just makes me ask so many questions. And I that's I fun think... to me. That's really fun that I don't know. Here's the thing. If you look at the U.S. Suzuki site, mm-hmm. you can find a vast myriad of well-tuned 750s, 1000s, and 600 CC in CC inline four motors. You can find some detuned versions. And some one and twin cylinder 250s. What Suzuki is super desperate for is an insanely cheap world model. Yeah. That's what they want more than anything else. When you think about the size of Suzuki, how they're making their money off the Jixer, how narrow their their product line is what they really need is a really cheap world model well no they have that the van van Um, maybe it's just because americans haven't gone for the van van and they're like well what if we do something that's just there was a van van to ride there was a van van test ride available at coda there wasn't here at aim I, well, well. Here's the thing: if you've got SSR making the the TNT 300, is the Van Van cutting it these days in China? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't think they sell the van. They sell a lot of Van Vans, and they always have. But I think they're selling them in, like I said, Malaysia, Vietnam, the, you know, places like that. That's where the Van Van's selling well. Right. The Van Van is at most just a weird sort of toy for some people that live in rural America at best. that That's what it's for. That's what it's doing. And it's not going to sell very many here in the States. So maybe they're thinking like, oh, maybe if we can introduce this idea. Maybe we need like this 150 platform to compete in more of a Grom area. But we don't want to just like come here with this weird sort of Grom-like teaser that's not exciting enough for people. What if we put it in this race bike format? We know we can sell a 150 race bike in Southeast Asia. People will go nuts for that. But we'll just sort of see what people think about a 150 in its like best, fastest possible form. And maybe next year they're going to be like, all right, we've got the Grom killer. It's the exact same price or cheaper, but... Here it is, a 150. 
you know, instead of nine and a half horsepower, it's 11 horsepower. And there you go. Like, like, you know, like Z125, go fuck yourself. You know, <laughs> maybe that's what they're doing. That's the best theory I could come up with. But again, so so there was something even that was that was one of the more interesting things. Again, so let's move on. The craziest news, the biggest reveal from anyone really was that the new ZX6R, the 636 Ninja, is now 10 grand. Now, we need to talk about this. And I I don't know why the other podcasts haven't been talking about this. And I don't even really know why we didn't lead with this. Because forever, the Jixer 600 has had the GSXR 600 Suzuki, their 600 Super Sport bike, has had the reputation for being the cheap bang for buck horsepower. And quietly over the last decade, the price of it has come up in relation to other 600s. And it's now actually kind of almost more one of the premium 600 Super Sports, oddly enough. And it certainly got the racing history and pedigree to back that up. And Suzuki excels in selling those bikes and focuses on selling those bikes. But now the Ninja, which is the classic Super Sport name, and has that bad boy reputation, but also kind of a reputation for being one of the pricier ones in middle of the pack, has now all of a sudden become the cheap bang for buck bike. Are we going to start seeing in 5, 6, 10 years rednecks on 636 ninjas pulling dank woolies up and down the street, crashing them, selling them, trading them for drugs, right? Is that, I hope so. I, it, it's, a, it's a weird proposition. Are we going to live in an upside-down world where the ninja is now the fucked-up thing? Or is it, it – and before it becomes the fucked-up, cheap, most stolen, most crashed bike – because the, it's so accessible with price, is there going to be a big new sort of um, rekindling of America's love with the ninja name? That's what I'm thinking. Because the ninja name isn't as prestigious as it was. We've talked so much about how in the 90s, like ninja was just almost as you know equivalent as Harley Davidson as just a synonym for motorcycles in general. And it's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit, right? It, the Ninja name doesn't have the traction that it used to. If it's just ten grand for the six three six, we might be returning to that, which would make me very happy. And then eventually, it might go in this sort of you know Jixer six hundred katana range of a bike that's worth nothing. And then also equally because a brand new ZX six R is ten grand automatically everyone that has a five-year-old zx6r just lost about fifteen hundred dollars of resale value on their <laughs> used bike well right so a whole bunch of people will be buying you know well, five I to still, ten year old zx6rs well I've, I've heard everyone refer to it as a new 636 and it is a 636 cc motor but i haven't seen any official labeling or any page or anything with the 636 name on it 
for the so, 2019 model. So Kawasaki's done this before. There is no so you have to get the ZX6 RR for just the 600. The regular ZX6R is the 636. Ah, okay. So if you want to get if you want to pay the extra money for the full on track spec ZX6RR, then you get the 600. So it's kind of back to the glory days of the Z, of the of the 636 where the regular one is actually faster and better. It's wacky world. It's wacky world and I think it's cool. Now, moving on to Honda and their reveal. They didn't have one. They just pressed on the monkey bike and the Super Cub even more. Well, let's be fair. Honda did release, like, what, seven dual-clutch models in 2018? And they did do updates to the dual-clutch in 2019. Yeah. That made all the difference in the world for me. Um... Yeah, there's nothing really new and exciting since Coda except for the monkey bike that and the the Super Cub. And the Super Cub that were actually released since Coda and now. No, I agree. Yeah, the Super Cub and the monkey bike were released very recently actually. I mean, we talk about motorcycles every damn week. It feels like a million years ago. It was only months ago. So Honda's thing is that they're still pushing this monkey bike and super cub thing, which they absolutely should be. It's still their new thing. Like it's, it's a little weird that they dropped that news in the middle of the year instead of in, you know, what's traditionally sort of the motorcycle production industry's silly season, so to speak. Right. Mm. Um, you know, they teased them and, you know, they, long before they were available. And I don't know if that was a smart move or not. I mean, Honda knows what they're doing. But it was it was a little weird to go by Honda and be like, well, you know, we've read everything about these bikes. We've seen pictures of them. We've seen videos of people riding them. Now we see them in person. And, you know, the they are beautiful. They're they're obviously well built. They're they're obviously premium product, even though they're small power. It's a proven platform, it's a proven engine for what they're designed to do, they're going to be the best of of any bikes that have ever aimed to do those things. There's no question, right? Right. But I feel like what Honda should be selling right now is a lifestyle. Because Honda's not doing a lot of high-performance stuff. In fact, they're moving towards more lower-performance stuff. And I want to get back to this idea that I had for Honda like seven months ago. Their slogan needs to be Honda Ride Every Every day. Day. They need to be pushing the fact that, like, who else has this giant line of 700s and 500s? Nobody. Everyone's right. got 800s and 900s and 1300s that are all supposed to be the biggest, baddest, most expensive, crazy thing in adventure or racing or whatever. And Honda's making the cheaper, super reliable ones that you can use every single day. And Honda needs to be trading on this idea of riding a motorcycle as a daily part of your life and your lifestyle rather than pretending to be a weekend warrior. 
Yeah. It's a tricky thing to pull off, but we've talked about like, you know, off, off mic about the commercials that could make this work. You know, we're like this idea of, you know, showing, you know, like a guy and a girl, you know, on separate trips through traffic and, you know, back roads and whatever on their commute to work. Right. And then they sort of like each pull into like parking spots that are, um, you know, like, like, uh, two parking spots apart. Right. And then like, you know, two, like, honda fits or something park in between right and it's like right next to the girl the guy that pulls in on an nc 700 there's like a girl in the fit next to him that goes like oh and like checks out the guy on the bike and then there's the guy in the honda fit that parks next to the girl on the motorcycle and he's like check her out you know and it takes this whole thing of just having this nc 700 that a lot of people might not think is super exciting but then it introduces the idea that just because it's a motorcycle and you make it a part of your lifestyle and you take it to work, there's still something exciting about it and dangerous about it and sexy about it. And that's what, you know, Honda needs to bring fucking sexy back and put it in that mindset of, okay, you know, you're showing up to your job. Like today I was at this ridiculous meeting with like our accounting people and, um, it was very Denver, you know, they've got like Nerf guns in the break room and everyone's riding around on like razor scooters through the hallways and stuff. They're trying to be very progressive office environment, right? You know, that's exactly the sort of place where if someone bought an NC 700 and started riding it to work, you know, all of a sudden six other people at the office would buy motorcycles and start riding them to work. So they're like, oh my gosh, he's doing this. You know, everyone's trying to convince themselves they don't have a boring office job. No, no. And in the office job, and I will tell you, I have all of those things at work. The hard line is the, um, is the little, the, not the scooters, but the, um, the hoverboards the hoverboards the hoverboard is the hard line <laughs> for office nerds well no but i'm saying like you know, forget forget you know your dream of working at google with the cereal bar and everything like that just you know what what everyone really needs to do to sort of break that mold and and live a better life than they think they are in their cubicle is buy a fucking practical honda motorcycle and make it a part of your goddamn life that's a real step towards doing something in the real world and making your daily commute and your lifestyle more enjoyable and better. Not riding a hoverboard or having a Nerf gun in your cubicle. That's just trying to fool yourself. Well, the Nerf gun is just for pissing off your friends. Uh, okay. it's, imp- it's important. The Nerf gun is a metaphor for a lot of things in this scenario okay. I'm talking about, right? <laughs> So so there you I'm go. I'm just feeling a little attacked right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why? You're the guy at work with the fucking motorcycle. I also have a hoverboard and two Nerf guns. But Wait, you have a hoverboard? How do I not know this? They're they're not as exciting as you think they are. No, I don't think they're exciting. I just didn't know that you own like this is a darker <laughs> secret than vaping. No, I didn't I didn't I don't own one. I inherited one. Oh. <laughs> so you won't even admit to owning it. 
They don't have titles, okay? <laughs> you can't prove anything. Did it come with the position? Is like, well, you're now the manager of this section. Here is your company-issued hoverboard. <laughs> <laughs> is that what happens when you break, like, 80 grand in the tech industry? They assign you a hoverboard. <laughs> There's a ceremony. It's very equivalent to a knighting. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, so stop. back to motorcycles. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, I, fine. I, I The one... So I, I kind of talked about, like, you know, even though, like, Honda didn't have anything that was a huge reveal for us, I still kind of understood what they were doing. I just thought they're not really squeezing the lemon here. You know, they should be talking more about how the Goldwing is a bike you can use for everything and how these bikes are fun and whatever, but they're all, they're kind of distraction. The real story is that they have all the super practical bikes you can really live with, you know? And, but so that was, so that at least kept us talking about Honda and hanging around the Honda booth where I didn't spend any time and didn't really see anything that new or interesting to me was at Yamaha. I just couldn't get excited Apparently, at Yamaha. Yamaha is going to release a brand new R3, which is the first time they've redesigned it since they released it. But that's going to come in January, apparently. And it'll probably be an R4. I hope so. Well, yeah, it'd be insane if they didn't, but whatever. But again, like, I I guess they had like, you know, the, the Nikon or Nikon, Nikon, right? Did they have a fully assembled one? Yeah. No, yeah, they had they, a fully they, assembled one, and then they had, like, a cutaway sort of one. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Yeah, not a motorcycle. Moving I don't on. care to. Yeah, it, I, it's just this weird thing they're making, and I don't I don't get it. I, yeah. I want to... Let's say, what else was weird about the show? Um, oh, we need to talk about... Um, so, missed opportunity. Again, Can-Am hasn't started making dirt bikes again and wasn't there. But Polaris was there, not as part of Indian or whatever, but they didn't have a setup inside. They were next to the test rides. They had a slingshot there, and they were just endlessly doing donuts. They just had a guy... And you could sign up and you'd sit next to him in like the passenger seats. And then he would just do donuts with you sitting there. And that was it. Just he'd just go drifting around in a circle again and again and again, nonstop all day as some other dude like ran around with this like steady cam situation, constantly filming it. I guess trying to make you feel like you're in some sort of super exciting video that's going to get put on YouTube and everyone's going to think you're so cool because they see a video of you spinning around in this slingshot. like Which it, I, I feel like it kind of backfired because I did not see a single person who was impressed by this. And on the contrary, it was more like, you know, it's not a big square there. It can't really be that hard to drift this thing. Right. I. It seemed like they just spent the whole weekend advertising the fact that this thing has no rear-end traction. 
Right. (laughs) It was was a lot of expense to go set up a bunch of guardrail and prove that this thing cannot really corner very well. (laughs) Pretty much. Beyond that, I don't understand why it was there at all. So, So there's that. Um, I guess we can talk for a second about Vanderhall, a new three-wheeled thing. But instead of it, like, the Polaris, like, the Polaris is like... The Slingshot. Sorry, sorry, yeah. The Slingshot is like... Hmm. The Slingshot is like a fat kid that swears he would just crush if they would only let him on the varsity football team, right? He's really not an athlete. He wants to hang out with the cool kids, the motorcycles, but can't because he's just not of that, right? So the Vanderhall goes a completely different direction. The Vanderhall goes, this is a three-wheel contraption, but it's much more of a car than it is a motorcycle, Right. It kind of has this like 1950s race car look to it. It's got this like turbocharged one liter inline four in it or something like that. And um, it's supposed to be kind of quick in a, in a straight line. It has traction control and ABS and all those things. And it's ungodly expensive. But it's kind of like, you know, like if, if your wife or girlfriend or, you know, what if your other, sorry, not wife, if your other, doesn't want to get into a, Pol- a Polaris slingshot because they're like, what the hell is that? I'm not going to be seen in that thing. There's a much higher chance they'll get in this Vanderhall thing. But again, or a Miata. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you want to, if, if you, if you don't want a Miata, if you want a Miata, but you don't want a Miata, you buy a Vanderhall. Like that's it. So moving on, nothing really crazy there. We did not test ride it. I kind of thought it would be really funny if we signed up for a test ride and I just sat as the passenger and and you just drove it around and I had just been like, whatever. But again, not that exciting. Um, what else was really weird and cool about the show? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered the gambit of... Uh... What we what we did. I will add this for anyone that's made it this far through this double dump extravaganza. You might notice that I sound a little different at the end of this episode than I usually do. I'm not going to reveal too much, but I've developed a condition where, at least for the foreseeable future, I can sadly no longer drink alcohol like I normally do through all of this. And if it was a little low energy for me at the beginning of this episode, I apologize. I'm going to do my best to be as stupid as I normally am without the slurring, I guess. But if maybe if you preferred the more sober MotoG Pete, feel free to send me an email and encourage me because I'm going to tell you what, this condition of mine isn't just a health condition. It's an identity crisis because I can't have PBR anymore. And that is a problem for me. So, I don't know. Maybe you got some kind words of encouragement or sympathy. 
And with that, I'm also going to remind everyone to leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes or whatever your source of podcast is. They all have some sort of form you can leave us reviews. Also, make sure to send us an email to nokomotopodcast at gmail.com because we would love to hear from you about whatever the hell you want to tell us about. Tell us your stories about your bikes, what you do, who you ride with, why you ride what you do in your spare time and what you think you might be doing with your spare time when you can't ride when it's snowing. I don't know. Tell me what color your boogers are. I don't know. And with that, we're going to sign out of this one and let's run the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Cold.